If you will, take your Bibles. Turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. Just a second, we're going to read of verse 41 through 47. A message entitled, The Way a Church Ought to Be. Acts chapter 2. This will be our last in the series of the New World Coming. New World got here, Acts 1 and 2. It came and... and um, Next week will be Easter Sunday. Can you believe it? Resurrection Day. I hope you thought about who you're going to invite on Resurrection Day. Growing up, I remember that word all, all, all too often. I can't recall the times that my dad said, You ought to do this. You ought to say that. You ought to be this. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did that ever happen to you? If you did, it ought to be a sweet memory because you know your daddy... Your dad loved you. You know, ought is an interesting word, and, and so I, I did something I don't normally do. I went and looked it up in the, in the dictionary, did some research. I, you, I, I wrote some things down. Ought. It's used to express duty or moral obligation, like every citizen ought to help. It's used to express justice and moral righteousness and the like. He ought to be punished. It's used to express expectation. <laughs> Parents, grandparents. You ought to be home early. Hello? Y'all got it? It's used to express probability or natural order. That ought to be our train. That ought to be our plane now. And then the thesaurus gave us some synonyms. Commitment, duty, need, must, obligation, role, function, task, even chore. Today my hope is that we'll get our minds around ought, although I'm not going to hover over that word and the things that we ought and some things that we should consider from our text. The way a church ought to be. That thought evokes a question. What should a church be? Have you ever really pondered that? If I were to go to everybody right down the row with a microphone and talk about what road would be, or probably better if I gave you a piece of paper and said, what should a church be? You do realize that I would get as many or more answers than we got people in this church. Because everybody's got their own idea of what church should be. Some would say it should be social. That means it should meet the needs of the poor and the needs of the world. Some would say it needs to be focused on families. It's got to be on families, take care of families. Some would say... It's a place of worship. Others would use words, talk about what the church ought to be like, kind and sharing and giving and, and things like that. Now, some of you are saying, Brother Jerry, you mentioning these. Are these wrong? No, I don't think they're wrong at all. I will say that from a biblical standpoint, it seems to me that they're incomplete. They're incomplete. As we walk through today... I hope to share with you the things that I think a church ought to be, a church should be, from a biblical mindset. But you think about all those characteristics that I just mentioned and all the things, as good as they all are, is that I think that we have to take a look at the first century and see what it was like, what qualities, characteristics, what type of church it was, and then possibly rethink and remake us. You'll hear that a couple of times today. 
If you will, if you found Acts chapter 2, we finished chapter 2 today. We'll begin in verse 41 and, and read to the end. Let's stand to honor the reading of God's holy word. We'll pick up in verse 41, and for those who were not here, I'll tell you that Pentecost has just happened. Uh, people came and responded to the sound and the sense and the, and the sights of Pentecost, and Peter preached. They asked what they should do, and he said, you should repent. And so in verse 41, we pick up with the results. It says, so those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them, that is, to their church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being, done, being performed through the apostles. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. <clears throat> they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, or old translations, daily, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, for the next few moments, I pray that you will open our hearts to what you want us to be. I pray that you'll open our hearts to any change that you want to have in us individually and us collectively. I pray that you'll be the guider of our thoughts, the guider of our hearts, the guider of our day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We have just read the beginning point of the local church in the aftermath of Jesus ascending to heaven. This is the beginning of the church in the redeemed world. This church is the original. It's the pattern, the key. Now, I used to do a little woodwork. I know you're shocked. I know you're saying, is there any end to that boy's talents? But I had myself a little bandsaw, and I was great with that pud as long as I had a pattern. Had me a pattern, I could draw it out on the wood, and I could cut it, and I could make it, and people enjoyed it. It's kind of like a key. I don't have a key on me. When Mike Patrick puts on a new lock in this building... He has the original key, works smooth as silk. But as things happen, you have to make a copy of the key. Now, it's a little better today in the day of laser lock, laser cutting. But I remember back in the day when I used to cut them in maintenance at Kerry, is that you had that little machine that you cut them with, and every time you cut them, they would flaw just a little bit. And then you would cut them again, and you'd, you would... Duplicate the flaw, and it gets a little worse, a little worse. You get about the 12th one. How many of you have ever made a key? Don't, don't raise your hands, for goodness sakes. How many of you have ever made a key at a store? You came home, put it in, and it didn't work. 
And the reason it didn't work is that it wasn't alike the original enough to fit. It's too far removed from the original. And and I want to just say this. It seems the church in the 21st century, that's where we are today in, in America. You see, folks, Jesus does more than forgive our sins. He does more than give us a home in heaven. He died the death of a sinner for you and me to call us to a greater work. You remember what that work is. He called us to rescue the perishing, to care for the dying, to snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. We're to weep or the erring one, the ones who are lost their way, and lift up the fallen and tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. That's what the cross that Duke sang about. That's what it's all about. It's a great lyric to an old hymn, but more importantly, it's the way a church ought to be. It was the church of the first century. It's supposed to be a church of the 21st century. Let me rattle some cages. This is one man's opinion. This is not Bible, and I'm not going to carry you to a uh, um, to a survey that says. Well, I'll tell you. I can tell you some things that'll that'll back it up. The 20th century church in America seems to have lost her way. The 20th century. For the first time in the history of the church, we attained some prosperity. We attained some things that we can do on our own. If God could bless buildings and budgets and baptisms and activities and programs, Southern Baptists would be at the top of the list. Reminds me of that, I believe it was Augustine visiting the Pope. And, and they walked him in, not the Pope, but I think the bishop walked him into the room where all the riches of the Catholic Church were. And he said to Augustine, he said, look, he said, no longer do we have to say silver and gold have I none. And Augustine said, that's right, but no longer do you say take up your bread and walk. You see, it doesn't rise and fall on our prosperity. I believe that the church lost its way in the 20th century. And what's going on in the 21st century, hundreds of, people, hundreds of churches closing. Fewer baptisms than 60 years ago. What is going on is that the law of sowing and reaping has come home. Recently a friend said to me, you know, I heard it said, Jerry, that somebody said that we're only one generation away from paganism. My response was, That was one generation ago. Wynne Arne Arne illustrates this thing that the 21st century church has 
wandered away. And I want to say wandered away. Please hear me. I don't believe there is an ungodly person. who. I don't believe that, that the people in the church are ungodly and just decided to go away. What I think happened is that it happened accidentally. It happened unintentionally. And it just was subtly. The, Satan kept pulling us toward the things that money can buy and toward our own self-interest. When Arne is a man who is a church consultant, he did a survey of 1,000 congregations. And he asked them, why does the church exist? You know that I did my own survey. It wasn't that extensive, but he did it. Why does the church exist? Nine out of ten people, if you want to know the exact Percentage, 89% said the church's purpose is to take care of my family's needs and my needs. Do you know what that leaves? That leaves 1%. Actually, 1 out of 10, actually 11% said the purpose of the church is to win people to Jesus Christ. Folks, that's not the way the church ought to be. So let me just lift out some qualities and some types of church from our, from our text. And when we, when we hear these things and see these things, we ought to apply them to ourselves. Because Jesus died, he gave his life blood. Today is Palm Sunday, next, day is, next week is Easter Sunday, this week is Crucifixion Week. He shed his blood for us. That when we receive him as our personal Savior, it changes our lives from the inside out, not the outside in. Too many people are trying to have behavior modification and get in a church, and they just come into a church and try to change their behavior and fit in. Sadly, that happens too often. But when Jesus comes into a life, it happens the opposite. It starts inside, and it's like a fire that goes outside. Allow me, if you will, just to talk to you about four or five churches. Chelsea, I think you're going to have to skip something up there because I'm not going to use the quote by John Adams. Number one, if you've got your bulletin, you can write it down. If you don't have a paper, you can write it down. A steadfast church. Now, honestly, I know people will beat me up for this later. Honestly, steadfast is not a word that we use in, in common talk today. It's not, it's not really a, a word of our culture today. It's more a King James word, but I chose it, quite honestly, because it starts with an S, because it was in King James, because it knows what it means. The modern-day words are words like devotion and commitment, a church that is devoted and committed. This church had no divided loyalties. Look in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Look down in verse 46. Every day, daily, they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. They were devoted on all levels to the Lord's church. They were steadfast. You can look at the depth of their commitment. They were committed to discipleship, the apostles' teaching, if you just want to know the truth. That'd be what we call it today, our connect groups. They were, they, were, they were dedicated. They were devoted. They were committed. They were devoted to the fellowship. That is the body of Christ. That is here. That is now. 
They were they were developed they were devoted to communion, eating, and breaking bread. Some of us call that fellowship. The fellowship is much deeper than that. They were devoted to prayer. Think about it. They prayed for ten days, and three thousand people got saved. Have you ever thought about why they were so committed to prayer? They were so committed to prayer is because they didn't believe they could survive without it. Sometimes we're, the reason we're not committed to prayer is because we think we can get along without it. We can get along without Him. The truth is, is, is they were steadfast. They stuck with it. They were devoted to it. They didn't miss a beat. They didn't let anything come between them and their Lord Jesus, between them and their church fellowship, between them and their brothers and sisters. How do I know that they didn't let anything come between them? Because of their schedule. Every day. They didn't get together and, uh, as a church once a week. They didn't get together twice a week. They got together every day. Verse 42 and 46 tell us this. And when it uses that word devoted, I think it's important that I talk about the word devoted, steadfast, committed. Watch this. That means to do something that takes intense effort despite the circumstances. We have several people here. I see Jimmy and Cheryl receive some perfect attendance pins and I know when we handed it to Brother Jimmy that he spoke and he said, you know what? This takes effort. This takes effort. You know, to be faithful to God's house, to God's church, to God's people, to God's plan, to God's way takes effort. I think of the ball players that we have. Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want to insult anybody. But we're living in a day and age when everybody thinks that their child's going to be the next Babe Ruth. All they have to do is give them enough energy and talent when, when, when the truth is. Eric, you'd know this better than me. Probably 5% of the kids that play high school go on to college. And probably 5% of college go on to pro. It's a very small percentage. But here's what I'm telling you. For those folks who have the talent, they have to devote themselves to it. You can have enough talent to play baseball, golf, football, or anything else. If you don't devote to it, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And you have to devote yourself. That means as a young person, you turn your back on things some of your other friends are doing so that you can devote to, to whatever God has gifted you in. Brothers and sisters, it's the same way. It's the same way with us in our faith. Except I will say this, the difference is we don't have to look for the extremely talented. God's called all of us. God has called every one of us to be devoted, to be committed. You know how devoted they were? Don't you like this? Let me pick on us. Verse 46. Every day... They devoted themselves to meeting in the temple. Why in the world would they meet in the temple? 
Here's why. I am not a, a, I'm not a, a prophet, the son of a prophet, a theologian, or the son of a theologian. But it doesn't take, it's not brain surgery to know the reason they gathered in the temple was to worship. No offense, but it wasn't a simple song service. When they got together, they gave testimony. When they got together, they read scripture. When they got together, they prayed above all else. When they got together, it was all about him. It was not anything about us. That was their worship, and they did it daily. They were committed to the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, who had lived, died, resurrected, ascended, and now sat at the right hand of God, interceding for them. And he left them with explicit instructions about how to function. They were a steadfast church. They stayed with it. Second thing I would say to you is they were a sharing church. A sharing church. Now hang on to your seats and don't walk out of here and say something the preacher didn't say, okay? You look at verses 44 and 45. Now all the believers were together, held all things in common. They sold their possessions and properties and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. First thing I want to say to you about that, it is true that they got together, they lived communally, they sold all their assets, and they distributed it so nobody, it was kind of... It was kind of something maybe the the woke crowd's trying to get them to do today in this utopia. Here's the problem over the long term. If you follow the history of the the Jerusalem church, they were broke. They had no assets a few years later. Second thing I would say to you is is that was not a divine mandate, mandate to do that. So now I've got the disclaimer, so now can I tell you the best part of this sharing church? Here was the deal. When they got filled with the Holy Spirit, they knew they had to be generous. They knew they had to be giving. They knew they had to be caring. They knew they had to do all these things. And what they did is when they erred, they didn't err on the side of caution. They erred on the side of generosity, and they tried to outgive God because it was a part of their life. There's a study today living open-handed in a tight-fisted world. I'm just going to say this. Fortunately, I can preach to this congregation all day long because you have not been tight-fisted. I've been here 18 months. You've never been tight-fisted. But there are people in the church today that are tight-fisted. What's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it. And that's not the church of the living God. That's not the way the church ought to be. I'm glad to say, and that's why I'm going to move across this so quickly, I'm glad to say that it appears to me from my position from the time I've been here, that all we have to do in this church may be our greatest strength. All we have to do is mention a need. And people are right on top of it, wanting to meet that need. May it never go away. Characteristic three is a singing church. A singing church. Well, Brother Jerry, I don't sing. Well, that's not what it's all about. Look down in verse uh, um, 47. It says, Praising God and enjoying or having joyful favor of all the people. When you get back up, you go back to verse 41, it says, uh, my translation says those who accepted the message, and I know uh, some translations feel the need to put they joyfully accepted the message, and they were trying to express the emotion of what was going on. Please listen to me. Please listen. A joyful church is a singing church. And a singing church 
is a joyful church. There's no ands, buts, or ifs about it. There is no way around it. Men, women, students, children should be singing. It is not unmanly to sing. Can I get an amen? It is not unwomanly to sing. It is not, it's not anything. That, I know the Bible says play and sing skillfully, but the same Bible that says play and sing skillfully says make a joyful racket. Hello? You see, you see, this song that we're talking about is, is coming from your heart. This, the song is it's not lines and notes on a paper. I have a music degree. I understand about those things. But this is about something that wells up inside of you that won't stay there. I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. I believe in the old rugged cross. Could you sit there and not belt those words out because of what they meant and what they mean? I stand amazed in the presence. You see, folks, singing is the overflow of the heart. But I can't sing. I don't like to sing. I'm not going to sing. Be mad at the preacher. Nobody else said this but me. It has little to do with the music. It has more to do with what's in your heart. Because when your heart is full, it overflows. When a song comes from your heart, it's not a musical event. I, I get it, guys, gals. Everybody can't stand on this stage and do what Duke just did or what Eric and his teams do week in and week out. I get that. It's okay. But you're not asked to. What we're asked to do is be the singers that lift the praise. Wouldn't you love to be a part of a church where when somebody comes by on Sunday morning, they go, whoa, what's going on in there? I've got to go see. What's going on in there? I've got to go see. And they come in, they find us singing to the top of our lungs about what Jesus means to us and what he did for us. A singing church. Fourth, a spirit-filled church. A spirit-filled church. Now, some of you better hang on to your hats just for a little bit. How do I know from this text that they were spirit-filled? Because verse 43 says, Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. You see, when a church is the way it ought to be, when a church is the way it ought to be, God is in the house. And when God is in the house, people are in awe. In fact, I started to call it, I didn't know what to call this message today. I started to call it the awful church. And I thought, well, that doesn't sound right. You'll get that on the way home. Okay? The awful church. And then I thought I probably could have called it the awesome church. But it seems to me that it's the way it should be. You see, when God is in the house and God is in control, everybody's pretty much in awe. But when God's not there, it's pretty much routine. Pretty much routine. I tried to find the statement. I heard Michael Catt use it many times. But we had a mission leader in the Southern Baptist Convention back in the 70s 
that said the Holy Spirit could die and most churches would go on without a beat for 10 years or so because they'd figured it out. You see, folks, when God's not in the house, the joy's gone, the peace is gone, the inspiration's gone, and the boredom takes over. But when God gets in the house, it's different. And the Scripture says, wanders in signs. Did I just make you nervous? You about to talk about miracles, Brother Jerry? Oh, yeah, I am. Oh, yeah, I am. Miracles. And the Holy Spirit manifests himself in a building, a body, or a life. The most natural outcome is a miracle. The supernatural. The extraordinary. In fact, I'll tell you this way. The, the supernatural becomes the natural. The extraordinary becomes the ordinary. And you know what it's like? Do you realize that you have a machine in your house that 150 years ago would have seemed like magic and a miracle? You actually got several of them. Let me just give you one. Most of you, most of you have a refrigerator in your house that has a deep freeze attached to it, a freezer attached to it. You take and you put ice you take and put water in that freezer, what happens? Come on, speak up. Ice. In fact, I think you've heard me say this before. If you put water in that freezer and it doesn't become ice, you're going to call Mike Patrick or some other repairman. Got me? Because it's not working right. But now you put that water on your counter all day long, won't do anything because the environment's not right. But that freezer, that's supposed to be so cold that it freezes everything. Let me just say this to you. The church is supposed to be an incubator. Now, i got chicken people here, places. Incubators are warm. Am I right? Okay, I'm right. And they're warm so they can hatch the biddies. You see, that's what the environment, that's what the Holy Spirit does when He comes in week after week. And it starts in our lives. It starts in your life. Is the Holy Spirit present and resident in your life? If He is, what is happening to show the fruit of your life? Where the, ordin- the extraordinary becomes the ordinary. I just want to say this, and I'm going to pass this because we're out of time. <laughs> I'd love to see the Holy Spirit of God to come in here so strong and do some things so miraculous that we all look like we're catching flies. But let, just don't miss this before I pass the point. When Jesus comes into a heart, when the Holy Spirit comes into a heart and changes that heart, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's not something Brother Jerry does or it's not something Mark Croner does or Sherman. It's something only God can do. And it comes from a spirit-filled place. Last one. This is a salvation church. Now you can put whatever you want to at the beginning of that sentence. You can say that they're focused on salvation. They're driven by salvation. They're eaten up with salvation. 
They're good at bringing people to salvation. But here's the deal. This church deeply understood what the 21st century church in America seems to miss, that bringing people to Jesus is the heart of the church. It's the heart of the Christian life. It's the heart of Christ's calling to us. It's the heart of the Father's will. And when a body loses its vision to reach and touch the lost, it becomes lost itself. Lost cause in the kingdom of God. The church at Thessalonica... If you were to turn there, we're not going to turn there, but if you go read it this afternoon in the first chapter, it, it tells you that, that they were a model church because the Word of God came to them, they received it, and it trumpeted out from them. Contrast that with Sardis in Revelation 3. Sardis was a prosperous church, had a lot of stuff going for it. And Jesus said, you got a reputation of being alive, but in my eyes you're dead. I don't know about you, but I want to be alive in the head of the Lord's eyes. I want to be alive. I want us to be alive. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the day Jesus rode into the Jerusalem on a donkey to the cheers of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's only a few days later that those cheers turn to jeers by some of the same people. And Jesus was crucified. The very reason he endured what he endured was to rescue us from the destructive course that we're on and set up his church like us. And the church, when functioning correctly, the the world will understand because we'll be lifting him up in our lives daily and in our church life. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to our hearts. I pray if there's someone here who's never trusted you as personal Lord and Savior, I pray that today will be the time. We know that without you, we have no hope. Speak to hearts and draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.